We are now going to turn our attention uh, to the uh, what's happening in Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict following bloody tensions between Israel and Palestine. Israeli politics seems to be at a turning point, uh, but many argue it really won't make a change in Israeli foreign policy. On Sunday, June 13th, Israel's parliament will vote on whether to approve a new governing coalition that could potentially end the 12-year um, reign of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. On Tuesday, June 8th, Israeli parliament uh, speaker uh, Yariv Levin announced the vote will take place during a special session on June 13th. Meanwhile, on June 7th, Israeli police blocked a planned march by Jewish nationalists through Palestinian neighborhoods of Jerusalem after a similar parade last month played a key role in building the tensions, many say, sparked the latest um, conflict um, with uh, Palestinians. In the past week, security officials have expressed alarm at a rise in incitement and hate speech from voices on the far right in Israel who are angered by that the proposed government, while headed by a far right nationalist, also includes Arab and left-wing politicians. Israeli security forces guard the streets of Lod weeks after uh, people torch patrol cars, uh, synagogues and homes, and a lot of uh, fighting going on uh, between Israeli and um, people of Arab descent living in that area. Attackers who killed an Arab and a Jewish resident are still at large, and a mayor whom some blame for setting the stage for some of the worst domestic unrest in Israeli history remains in office. So here to help us to understand what's going on and the broader implications, we'd like to welcome back uh, Phyllis Bennis, directs the new internationalism project at the Institute for Policy Studies, focusing on U.S. Middle East and war policy. She also serves on the board of Jewish Voice for Peace. Her most recent books include Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, an expert in the region. Phyllis Bennis, welcome back. Great to be with you, Margaret. Okay, so Phyllis, um, break down for us. First of all, help us to understand what is happening now with this um, governing uh, coalition, this vote that's coming up on June 13th. What are the forces? This is a, this is mm -hmm. a very um, unstable situation. The vote that's supposedly going to happen on the 13th may or may not happen. The coalition that has been cobbled together with what do they say, duct tape and chewing gum, may or may not survive this week to get voted in officially, because this is a coalition that has one goal, one point of unity, which is get rid of Bibi Netanyahu as the prime minister. They don't agree on anything else. There is a, a right-wing component to it that is the most powerful component. There is a centrist party. There is a left-ish party. And there's actually a Palestinian party, you know, one of the, one of the five parties of, of Palestinian citizens of Israel is in this coalition. It's not going to survive, and it doesn't have enough uh, unity to actually accomplish anything other than the one goal of replacing Netanyahu. In terms of the impact, though, I think it's really important to recognize that politics in Israel has shifted so far to the right 
that even this sort of definition of this coalition as including the centrist and leftist forces is very much dominated by right-wing thinking and right-wing leaders. The first prime minister, if it happens, would be uh, uh, Naftali Bennett, who was a long-standing supporter of Netanyahu. He was actually his chief of staff for some years. He was in the cabinet appointed by Netanyahu and is quite a bit further to the right than Netanyahu. It's important for, for those of us who work in movements for, for Palestinian rights to keep in mind that this shift to the right in Israeli politics means that Netanyahu himself, as extremist and right-wing as he is, is one of the furthest left of his current cabinet because the, and he hasn't changed, but further right, extreme right, and really fascist right parties are now normalized parts of the Israeli political scene, and they are represented in the Knesset, they are in the government. So it's a very, uh, it, it's a very enticing notion that this is going to be a real difference, but it's not actually true. On the question of what to do about relations with the Palestinians, there's really very little difference uh, between Netanyahu and this new so-called coalition. Uh, there's not any difference on remaining very provocative towards Iran, and there's not any difference in demanding from the United States a continuation of unchallenged U.S. military aid to Israel. Uh, there's been reports, we haven't gotten confirmation yet if the official request has come through, but that the, uh, the defense minister of Israel has been in the United States, in Washington, in the last few days, asking for an additional billion dollars billion with a B, uh, to pay for Israel's replacement of some of the weapons they used in its recent attack last month on Gaza. So that's the, the scenario that we're looking at with this election. There's also the very real possibility, there's a few days left before this vote is going to happen in the Knesset to approve the new coalition as it's being proposed. And we know that Netanyahu has a history of being absolutely ruthless in his commitment to remaining in power. And right now, his commitment to remaining in power goes beyond his usual demand for power and maintaining control of Israeli politics. It's also very personal, because he is, as I think you, know, you and I have talked about, Margaret, and I think many of your listeners will know, he is facing a host of charges on a variety of corruption issues. Uh, and as soon as he's no longer prime minister, he will face the possibility of going off to prison after a few more sessions of, this, of, his, of his trial. And so his commitment to staying in power is all about getting a get-out-of-jail-free card as well as his political goals. So he is desperate to do that. And a few days may well be enough for him to either winnow off one. All he needs is one person out of those eight parties, eight parties that total 61 members of the Knesset, he just needs to convince one to break with this coalition, and the whole thing falls apart. He could also move to move further to, to uh, provoke a new war, probably not with Gaza. That didn't go so well for him the last time. But he could, on the Lebanon border, and certainly cyber attacks, other kinds of attacks against Iran, should not be ruled out. He's done that before, and I think this is something that, that we have to be very watchful of in this coming period. Right, and uh, Phyllis Bennis also 
um, you know, there, some people are talking about the possibility of a civil war. I don't know. That might be a bit of a stretch there within Israel itself. But you do find, um, you know, battles going on within Israel between um, right-wing um, Israeli citizens and Arabs who live in the region. I mean, like, for example, what's been happening in Lod. Tell us a bit about that and the implications of that. The implications really um, are more important, I think, on the Palestinian side than the internal Israeli political side. And what I mean by that is that one of the goals of Israel that where they've been very successful over the last 70 years has been in the fragmentation of the Palestinian people. So the divide between people who were expelled during the time of what the Palestinians call the Nakba, the catastrophe, what Israelis call the, the, the War of Independence in 1947 and 48, 750,000 Palestinians were forcibly expelled and never allowed to return home. They are the core of what became the Palestinian refugees who still live in refugee camps in the region, are scattered around the world in a far-flung diaspora. So that's one sector. Another sector remains inside the 1967, you know, pre-1967 borders of Israel. Those about 20% or so of the Palestinians who survived and were not expelled during the Nakba, who remained. They are citizens of Israel, but they are third and fourth class citizens. They don't have equal rights with Israeli Jewish citizens. So that's another sector. Then there are the Palestinians living under military occupation and siege in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and those who have a kind of in-between status in occupied East Jerusalem. So there's all these different sectors of Palestinian lives that have historically, because of Israeli strategy to do exactly this, been divided from each other. What we saw last month with the attacks on Gaza, the attack, the raid on the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the attempted evictions in, in uh, Sheikh Jarrah, a Palestinian neighborhood of occupied East Jerusalem, in order to give their land and their homes to Israeli Jewish settlers. All of this has brought together all the sectors of Palestinians inside Israel, in the occupied territories, in the refugee camps around the world, in a far more unified statement of opposition, mobilizations, the day that they called a general strike, that all the sectors kept to that discipline to impose that strike. All of that is a huge, a huge shift and a huge step forward for Palestinian unity in this struggle for equality and human rights. And in, at the same time, what we're seeing is that both the, the far right in Israel, which has been enabled and empowered and legitimized by the Netanyahu administration, very much like the, the Klan and the, the neo-Nazis, et cetera, have been enabled and empowered and given legitimacy during the Trump years. It's a very similar situation. And they have felt enabled to go out on these very provocative marches. Most recently, the one that, was, that you referred to that was canceled was uh, they were going to march through the old city of Jerusalem, through the Damascus Gate, gate a, a Palestinian part of occupied East Jerusalem, deliberately to provoke Palestinian rage. And it has led to fights. But we should be very clear that this notion of a civil war somehow implies armies on both sides. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a right-wing 
faction within Israel that has the backing of the state, that has the support of soldiers and police, where settlers, the most right-wing settlers, are armed by the Israeli military, trained by the Israeli military, and protected by the Israeli military. So they are an armed force. The Palestinians are not. The Palestinians have stones. That's really the the distinction that we're, that we're looking at here. So this is not anything close to a civil war. There is increasing tension that is now emerging because the Palestinian citizens of Israel, who constitute about a fifth of the population, about 20% of the population, of, of citizens, you know, these are citizens. It's, a, it's such an odd thing for us to think about, but this is really very parallel to pre-civil rights movement pre-Second Reconstruction United States South, where there are laws on the books that explicitly mandate treating one group of citizens different from another group of citizens based on this notion of nationality and religion. So Palestinians are citizens of Israel. They can vote. They can create political parties. They can run for office. They have representation in the Knesset. But not all rights in Israel, in the state of Israel, are citizenship rights. There's another whole category of rights known as, na- as nationality rights. And Palestinians don't have that because nationality for Israel is defined not as Israeli, in the sense that if you're a U.S. citizen, that's your citizenship and that's your nationality, American, U.S. That's your citizenship and your nationality. In Israel, your citizenship is is, is in the state of Israel, but your nationality is Jewish or Muslim or Christian. And if you're not Jewish, many of the rights of the country are not accessible to you. And in two years ago, when Israel passed the new law, what's known as the nation-state law, it made that, it was the equivalent of a constitutional amendment in the United States. It was that kind of a super law, if you will, that says explicitly that the right of self-determination in the land of Israel is limited to Jews, that only Jews have the right of self-determination. Other citizens do not. So it's a very explicit reference to this notion of categories of citizenship that are not equal by law. So that's what we're, we're now seeing Palestinians inside Israel who have long identified with Palestinians living under occupation, but lived under a very different environment with different, uh, somewhat different rights, different restrictions uh, relative to Palestinians living under military rule. But suddenly they realize that they have far more in common with those living under occupation. So the level of unity expanded dramatically in this last month. And that's been an amazing thing to see. And one impact of it, of course, is that there's a growing divide between Palestinian citizens and Israeli Jewish citizens in the country. And those tensions are continuing to mount, for sure. Right. Well, on that note, sadly, we are going to have to leave it there, Phyllis Bennis. But we have seen protests breaking out in London, England, and San Francisco, and um, where a port uh, was shut down for a while in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Phyllis Bennis, we'll have you back. Thank you so much for breaking this all down for us. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. It's been a pleasure.